California Slap Law Podcast, Episode 4. Welcome to the California Slap Law Podcast. California's slap law was a great idea, but it can be a minefield for the uninformed. To guide you through that minefield, here's your host, One from the law firm of Morris & Stone, Aaron Morris. for a long time. Acting has been very good to me. But after listening to Aaron Morris, I think being a lawyer would have been much more fun. Welcome to the fourth episode of California Slap Law Podcast. I'm Aaron Morris partner with the Southern California law firm of Morrison Stone. We actually handle cases all over the state. We've got cases right now in San Francisco, Sacramento, San Bernardino, and even San Diego. And of course, right here in beautiful Orange County. If you ever have any questions about anti-slap law, you can submit them through the website at californiaslaplaw.com or by all means, call me direct at 714-954-0700. You know, a lot of firms use toll-free numbers, and I think that'd be a horrible idea for my firm. We field dozens of calls every week from out-of-state callers. I have to tell them it just would not make economic sense to hire me to handle a case in Florida or Maine, for example. There's still quite a few people out there that just don't quite get this whole internet thing. I recently got a call from a woman in Queens. I could see from the number on the caller ID and from her accent that removed any doubt that this was a caller from New York. So she launched into her story, but I politely asked if the case had anything to do with California. When she said no, I explained that attorneys can only practice in the states where they're licensed, and in any event, it would not make economic sense to fly me out to New York and put me up in a hotel to handle the case. She screamed, well, then why do you advertise here? And hung up on me. Like I said, some people still are a little unclear on the whole internet concept. And that's why I don't use a toll-free number. I, I feel like if the potential client at least has to dial the 714 area code, that should put them on notice that they're calling an out-of-state attorney. Uh, I can't even imagine how many out-of-state calls we'd get if we used a toll-free number. So anyway, to, on to the subject at hand. Today we're going to analyze a real case in real time, as it were, because the motion, the anti-slap motion, was just filed. We can act as armchair quarterbacks on this one and bet on how it will turn out. You may have read about the case of Yelp versus Macmillan Law Group, Inc. In case you haven't, uh, the case is against a San Diego law firm, and Yelp is claiming that the firm posted fake Yelp reviews. The Macmillan Law Group is a, a bankruptcy law firm. There are actually two defendants. There's the Macmillan Law Group, and there's Julian Macmillan, the attorney. I'll refer to them collectively as Macmillan. McMillan just filed an anti-slap motion against Yelp's complaint, so today we're going to go through the complaint and the motion, and we'll make a prediction on the likely outcome. So let's begin with the allegations of the complaint, because that's crucial to what we're going to be talking about today. This tale of woe started back in October of 2012. Yelp persuaded McMillan to pay for a business listing on Yelp. Now, according to McMillan, Yelp promised certain results from the advertising, and when those results were not realized, McMillan asked for his money back. Yelp would not give McMillan's money back, so McMillan sued in small claims court and won. Now, Yelp is a billion-dollar company, and it was not going to take that lying down, so 
Yelp appealed the small claims judgment, claiming that the dispute was subject to an arbitration provision. The appeal was set for August 23, 2013, but Yelp had been busy. It had checked the IP addresses, names used, and email addresses used by all the positive reviews anyone had ever posted regarding Macmillan. Yelp decided that Macmillan had manufactured some of those reviews, so even before the small claims appeal was heard, it filed an action against Macmillan and his firm, claiming Yelp had been damaged by the fake reviews that defendants had posted. Now, was Yelp so concerned about the sanctity of its reviews that it immediately served the action to get to the bottom of this nefarious plan? No, Yelp waited about 30 days before it even attempted service, but it put that time to good use. Yelp sent out press releases about how it was working to preserve the sanctity of its reviews by suing Macmillan, the alleged faker. In fact, Macmillan found out about the suit when he was contacted by a reporter. 30 days later, uh, Yelp finally served Macmillan, but not at his home or office. It figured out where Macmillan would be in court and actually went to the bankruptcy court and served him there. Now, Macmillan, as I said, is in San Diego, but Yelp filed the action in San Francisco. Macmillan asked Yelp to move the case to San Diego. Normally, you sue where the defendant is located, but Yelp refused. So Macmillan brought a motion to change venue, and again, Macmillan won. Now, here's a quick side practice pointer. This is a little-known fact, but if a successful motion for change of venue is brought... It is the attorney who is personally responsible for any attorney fees. Apparently, the legislature thought the attorney picks the venue and should therefore be responsible if he or she picks wrong. So the attorney's fees were actually awarded against Yelp's attorney. Now, I'm sure Yelp paid them, but still. So Yelp had the burden of moving the action to San Diego and paying any necessary transfer fees. Uh, It took Yelp about 30 days to complete that process, and this time it was Macmillan who put the time to good use. Macmillan served a first round of written discovery and and set some depositions, and Yelp fought everything. Uh, I really enjoyed reading the uh, requests for admissions that that Macmillan served on Yelp and Yelp's responses. Now, Macmillan is being sued, claiming that Macmillan posted false Yelp reviews. So Macmillan asked what I consider to be the entirely appropriate request for admission, admit that defendants did not write any fake reviews seems like a perfectly legitimate request for admission to me. Yelp responded, Yelp objects that request number seven is compound because it asks for two admissions in a single request for admission, an admission as to defendant Julian McMillan and an admission as to defendant McMillan Law Group. Is that a valid objection? Well, let's see what CCP section 2033.220 has to say. That section says that each answer to a request for admission shall... Admit so much of the matter involved in the request as is true, either as expressed in the request itself or as reasonably and clearly qualified by the responding party. Well, gee, Yelp, if that compound question was troubling, how about answering something like this? As to Defendant McMillan, Yelp currently lacks sufficient knowledge to either admit or deny the request. As to the Macmillan Law Group, Yelp has more evidence than you could run and jump over and on that basis denies the request. Something like that. Here's a note to counsel for Yelp. The next time you run into one of those insurmountable discovery conundrums, pick up a phone and call me. I can, I can walk you through it. The number is 714-954-0700. Now, it's not a toll-free number. I, I hope that's okay. I often tell my clients that sometimes the best discovery you can get is no discovery at all. If a plaintiff who is suing, claiming you posted false reviews, 
can't put on any evidence of those false reviews, that can be a very good thing. So apparently McMillan thought the same thing or just had to get the anti-slap motion on file to beat the 60-day deadline because before any of the discovery was responded to, other than the objections we've been talking about, McMillan went ahead and filed the anti-slap motion. We're going to turn to that anti-slap motion in a minute, but you need to know the allegations of the complaint. Now, in its complaint, Yelp alleges that on September 13, 2012, McMillan received its first review ever on Yelp, and it happened to be a bad review. Soon thereafter, Yelp alleges, positive reviews began flooding, that's the word they use, flooding the Yelp listing for the McMillan Law Group. And like I said, Yelp had been very busy. It scoured the firm's website and other sources to find anyone that was affiliated with McMillan. And Yelp decided that some of the reviews had been posted by those in cahoots with McMillan. Yelp even found out that one person who had posted a positive review about the McMillan Law Group ultimately went on to marry one of the attorneys. Well, that's a clear conflict in Yelp's mind before accepting any marriage proposal. uh, That woman should have immediately gone on to Yelp to remove the review or at least to disclose that her opinions of the firm were blinded by love. Then, to make the reviews sound even more nefarious, Yelp repeatedly alleges that the reviews were posted within minutes of the Yelp identity being created. That's always the case. Well, it's not always the case, but I mean, when you post your first review on Yelp, that's going to be the case. When you go, you've been to a restaurant or a business and you either had a good experience or you had a bad experience. So you, you, you feel like you have to take to Yelp to post a review about your experience with this business. You go to Yelp and the first thing Yelp's going to ask you to do before you post that review is to create an identity. So of course you're going to create the identity and then within minutes post the review. That's not anything Uh, nefarious at all, but Yelp tries to make it sound as though it is. Next in the complaint, Yelp alleges that four of the reviews were posted from the IP address of the offices of the Macmillan Law Group. And on that basis, Yelp alleged on information and belief that those reviews did not come from real people and that those reviews certainly did not come from real clients. Now, you may be surmising at this point that I'm, I'm not a big fan of Yelp, In reality, Yelp has never done me wrong or anything, but the hypocrisy is a little thick. Let me give you an example. Many of our defamation cases arise from clearly fake Yelp reviews posted by, very often, posted by competitors of our client's business. Now, I don't expect Yelp to hire a staff of thousands to review all the reviews that come in to see if they ring true, but if Yelp were really concerned about the sanctity of its reviews, Then when they receive a subpoena from someone like me, the response from Yelp's counsel should be something like, I'm really sorry to hear that these might be fake reviews. So tell you what, let me check into these three reviews to see if they really were all posted from the same IP address on the same day. Uh, That's very suspicious. Those may well be all posted by the same person. Let me look into that and check. You don't need to go through this whole subpoena process. Let's just resolve this uh, informally. Uh, Surprisingly, I never get that response. They always make me jump through the hoops. They've always, uh, Yelp has always ultimately turned over all the information I request, but when I first serve the subpoena, I'm always met with uh, boilerplate objections stating that Yelp cannot respond until the person has been given notice uh, in case he or she wants to protect their identity. But apparently Yelp has no problem peeking at that information when it's Yelp's ox that's being gored. So a little bit different standard. But back to the allegations in the complaint. Uh, The last allegation, Yelp alleges that there was this sort of mutual admiration society uh, that Macmillan had arranged with other law firms. Uh, The firms would write positive reviews for each other, according to Yelp. And I really didn't get this one because that's what the reviews say. In other words, 
uh, the postings are, I'm a lawyer and I refer bankruptcy cases to McMillan and he does a really good job for my clients. There's nothing wrong with that. You've disclosed who you are. You've disclosed that you're not an actual uh, client of McMillan. So I, I don't see an issue with that. But Yelp alleges that this violates the terms of use because the real motivation for these reviews is to make money off of the mutual referrals or something. So so now you know the allegations. Let's look at the causes of action within the complaint. The first claim is for breach of contract. Now, when I first heard about this case, I thought the breach of contract arose from the advertising agreement between Yelp and McMillan. No, Yelp is alleging that McMillan and his law firm breached the terms of use you have to accept when you post a review on Yelp. You know those terms of use no one ever reads when uh, they sign onto a website? That is what Yelp is claiming created a contract between McMillan and Yelp. Yelp is also suing for intentional interference with contractual relations. Oh my God, as the saying goes, why do so many attorneys make that mistake? Sue for intentional interference with prospective economic advantage, not interference with contract. It's a very similar claim, but the contract claim adds additional elements. I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's circumstances where you'd want to sue for interference with contract, but when you're just basically saying somebody interfered with your business, go for prospective economic advantage, not interference with contract. And here's why. Here's the elements of interference with contract. You have to have a valid contract between the plaintiff and a third party. Well, Yelp is claiming it's the, the terms of use it has with all of the people who go on the website. Uh, that's kind of an iffy thing, but okay, let's give them that one. There's a contract. The, you have to allege and prove that the defendant had knowledge of this contract. Well, that's, again, that's kind of iffy. I don't know if a standard person uh, would be thinking in terms of the terms of use being a contract between Yelp and its users, but okay, let's give them that one. But the third element is you have to prove that the defendant's act was intentionally designed to induce a breach or disruption of the contractual relationship. How is Yelp ever going to prove that even if McMillan did post fake reviews, that that was done to disrupt a contractual relationship between Yelp and third parties? That's quite the reach. And then you have to have an actual breach or disruption of the contractual relationship. So it's not even enough that that was the nefarious plan of McMillan. You have to be able to show that it actually had that result. And then the biggie, you have to show that it resulted in damages. Again, Yelp is relying on the terms of use saying that's the contract. So basically, Yelp is alleging that every one of its users is subject to the terms of use and that those terms of use are an enforceable contract between Yelp and those users, that Macmillan knew about all of those millions of contracts, and that when Macmillan posted those fake reviews, it was intending to induce a breach or at least interfere with those contracts, and that Yelp was damaged by that interference. Like I said, I just don't see it. Yelp's theory, I suppose, if I had to argue the other side, is that if I go to someone and say, hey, you're a Yelp reviewer, here's what I want you to do. Go on and write a really good review about my Mexican food restaurant and I'll give you a free taco or whatever. That's interfering with the contract between Yelp and that Yelp user because the terms of use say they can't do that. They can't take compensation for the contract or excuse me, for the review. And so I'm interfering with that contract. Again, I, I just don't see it. And even if it is true, how does it damage Yelp? How is Yelp ever going to show that it was damaged as a result of that? The two remaining causes of action are for false advertising and unfair competition. I won't, go, I won't go through those except to observe that they too require a showing of damages. So because every one of Yelp's causes of action requires a showing of damages, that is why this action by Yelp is truly and epically boneheaded. That's the only way I can characterize it. Think about it. 
Yelp closely guards its business practices and the super secret algorithm it uses that supposedly weeds out some of the fake reviews. So with this complaint, Yelp claims that its reviews have to be kept pure, have to be kept sanctified, or Yelp will suffer damages. Well, okay, Yelp, show us everything you do to keep your your reviews pure and sanctified and show us all your financial information so we can determine how you've been damaged by these few allegedly fake reviews. That's really a brilliant legal strategy, Yelp. Okay, so finally, let's get to the anti-slap motion. Now, for reasons I'll explain in a moment, Yelp's complaint contains both protected and unprotected speech. Now, at one time, just maybe two years ago, there were two approaches to anti-slap motions that involved mixed causes of action, and the vestiges of those decisions still remain despite a subsequent Supreme Court decision that seemingly puts the issue to rest, but it keeps coming up. Now, mixed claims are those that include protected activities that would fall under the anti-slap statute and unprotected activities that don't. So there's no question that posting an honest review on Yelp is a protected activity. That seems to have been litigated to death at this point. At one time, it was difficult to convince a judge that a, a review on Yelp constitutes a matter of public interest, but everybody seems to have come around on that. Everybody now acknowledges that a post on Yelp is a protected activity. But is it a protected activity to post a fake review? Now, that's kind of an interesting issue because defamatory speech is never protected. So that's how when I bring an action against someone who has posted a fake review on Yelp, I'm not running into problems with the anti-slap statute. Well, they might they might bring an anti-slap motion, but I can overcome it because I can prevail on the likelihood of success prong, even if they show it falls under the anti-slap statute. But that's defamatory speech. What if you're just posting a fake review, a fake positive review? No one's hurt by that. Well, we can argue societally whether you're hurt by a fake review like that, but uh, it's not it's not along the lines of defamation. But let's let's assume that the evidence will show that some of Macmillan's reviews on Yelp uh, were in fact legitimate while others were fake. Is the complaint subject to being stricken because it contains claims against both protected and unprotected speech? Some cases held that where the allegations rest on protected activities and those protected activities are the primary thrust of the action, that the entire claim is stricken unless plaintiff can show a probability of prevailing on that claim. That was Ramona Unified School District versus Siknas. Then there was other cases that held so long as plaintiff could show a probability of prevailing on any part of the cause of action, whether protected or not, the entire action would survive. That was man versus quality old time service. And there were still other cases that held if a plaintiff could show that he's likely to prevail on the protected activities, then the entire action survived, and if not, the allegations about the protected activities were stricken, but the remainder of the cause of action survived. That's Haight-Asbury Free Clinics versus Happening House Ventures. That was sort of the scalpel approach where you'd go in and you'd cut out the allegations that covered the protected activities and leave the others in their place. So the various holdings led to some very unfair results on both sides. I'll give you a simple fact pattern to illustrate what I'm talking about. Let's say someone has a problem with their neighbor. They don't get along, so the neighbor uh, begins this campaign to drive the plaintiff out of the neighborhood. So the plaintiff sues for infliction of emotional distress or whatever, claiming that the neighbor is constantly calling the police. Uh, The neighbor calls Child Protective Services to claim that he's beating his child or whatever. 
Um, the neighbor even calls animal services and makes false claims about the way the neighbor is, um, way the way the plaintiff is treating their dog. Oh, and on one occasion, the neighbor tried to run down the plaintiff with his car. Well, the calls to the government agencies would be protected activities, but the assault with the car would not. Under one line of cases, the entire claim would be thrown out. Now, that's bad under that scenario because the car allegation was completely legitimate. That's a perfectly serviceable claim. He tried to run me down with his car. I was stressed out as a result of that. But that would be thrown out because it happened to be alleged with protected activities. Now, alternatively, though, under the Mann decision, if the plaintiff showed a probability of prevailing on the car allegation, the other protected activities would remain. But that's really risky because under that approach, the jury could end up being presented with allegations of protected activity along with the unprotected activity. Uh, I was recently retained to handle the appeal from a very large judgment where this precise issue arose. The complaint in that case alleges a number of protected activities, such as calling the police, but it included an activity that was not protected. Defendant filed an anti-slap motion, but it was denied because of that one legitimate allegation. Uh, Again, I wasn't involved in the trial court, but at trial, the defendant sought the standard jury instruction that would have at least protected the plaintiff, excuse me, protected the defendant by explaining to the jury that they could not consider the protected activities in awarding damages, but inexplicably the judge refused to give that instruction. So think about it now. The the, the jury is hearing about things like calling the police. Uh, I think, oh yeah, the other thing was the the plaintiff didn't like something that the defendant had said at a city council meeting. So uh, these were the things that were complained about in the complaint along with the uh, unprotected activity. So the jurors went into the jury room with all this evidence of the protected activities the defendant had engaged in, including calling the police and talking about the defendant at a city council meeting. And they returned a very large verdict because they considered those activities in determining whether the defendant was harassing the plaintiff. Now, I'm confident I'll get the judgment reversed on appeal, but it illustrates the importance of getting those allegations out of the complaint, even if other allegations remain. So now we have, after those cases, we came up with the Supreme Court decision of Oasis West Realty versus Goldman, which followed the approach adopted by Man versus Quality Old Time Service. If any allegation survives, then they all survive. Now, this approach really makes sense. This prevents the result in the car hypothetical I gave where a legitimate allegation is thrown out just because it is alleged with some protected activities. Now, on the other hand, It does mean that a plaintiff could end up with the situation I have on my current appeal. But that can be avoided so long as plaintiffs do not allege mixed causes of action and so long as other steps are taken to excise those allegations from the action before they can actually go in front of a jury, motions in limine, for example. So ultimately, the Oasis decision was decided on the basis of what the legislature intended, with the Supremes just deciding that under the anti-SLAPP statute, there's no basis to strike an entire cause if there were any proper allegations. So... We're almost there. With Oasis in mind and what we've discussed about the damages issue or lack thereof, will the anti-slap motion be granted in the McMillan case? Now, I hate to sound like an attorney at this point, but this one's a tough one to call. I think the motion may go down in the first round because the court won't even find that it falls under the anti-slap statute. Now, how is that possible, you ask? Isn't it pretty black and white at this point that Yelp reviews are a matter of public interest? Well, here's the deal. The gravamen of the complaint, if you think about it, is not about posting reviews on Yelp. It's about creating fake reviews. Let me give you kind of an extreme hypothetical to illustrate the point. Let's say I create a service that, for a fee, publishes fake positive Yelp reviews. 
Now, if you if Yelp sued to shut me down, the case would not be about the reviews. It would be about the fact that I'm posting fake reviews for compensation. The content of the reviews would, would basically be irrelevant to the action. If Macmillan can satisfy the first prong of the anti-slap analysis, and that's a big if, then Macmillan could prevail. If it gets that far, Yelp is going to have a really tough time showing it's likely to prevail if it's allowed to proceed with its action. Remember those reviews that Yelp alleged were not posted by real clients? Well, in conjunction with the anti-slap motion, Macmillan filed a declaration from each of those four clients. As it turns out, they are real people, they are real clients, and those are not fake reviews. So, at least as as to that point, Yelp will simply not be able to prove its case. Now, as to the other allegedly fake reviews by employees of the firm, McMillan, I didn't really see anywhere in the motion where it presented evidence to refute those allegations, but it is Yelp's burden to show evidence to support the claims. So even if Yelp can overcome that hurdle, there's still the fundamental problem that Yelp will not be able to show damages, and that's why I think all these causes of action are going to fail. Each of them requires damages, and in each case, I just don't see how they're going to do that. And even if Yelp can convince the court of damages... The motion to strike may well be granted as to, at least to Macmillan individually because there's just no evidence whatsoever that he participated in the allegedly fake reviews or was ever even a party to Yelp's terms of use. Now, what I find interesting is that, ironically, no matter what happens, Yelp loses. If it survives the anti-slap motion, that's going to lift the discovery stay and Yelp will be opening its books and algorithm for all to see. McMillan had already filed a motion to compel, but the anti-slap motion put the stay in place and rendered that motion moot or at least put it on hold. But once the motion is passed, if Yelp survives, it's going to have to put up or shut up. I really wouldn't be surprised to see Yelp dismiss this action. Uh, If not, I may well agree to come on pro bono as co-counsel just because I'd love to see the process. I I think it's going to be really fascinating. Unfortunately, this San Diego court is apparently very backlogged, so it will be quite some time before we know the outcome of the motion. It was filed in April, and the hearing is not set until November 21st of this year, seven months just to have the motion heard. You know, back when I first started practicing, it it generally took about five years to get the case to trial. One of the first things you learned as a litigator was to calendar the motion to be relieved from the five-year rule. You had to make sure that far enough in advance of the five-year rule, you brought your motion to get a waiver because otherwise the opposition could go in and, and bring a motion to Uh, have the case dismissed for failure to prosecute it within five years, even though it wasn't your problem, even though you weren't the one causing it not to be prosecuted. It's starting to sound like we're getting back to those days. Well, that'll do it for this edition of the California Slap Law Podcast. wanted to have four sessions in the can before applying to make these podcasts MCLE eligible. I'll let you know how that turns out. And of course, I'll let you know about how Yelp versus McMillan turns out. The case has a lot of twists and turns, and I'm really curious to see what the Court of Appeal thinks about it. So that'll do it for this time. Until next time, have a great week and try not to slap anybody. I'll let you in on a little secret. There were a couple of podcasts that I was thinking about doing, and as between them, I thought this one would be the one that nobody really listened to, at least not until I get signed up for MCLE credit. I think, I like to think anyway, that this would be a pretty relatively painless way to gain some MCLE credit. 
But until then, I thought this could kind of be my test project to get comfortable in front of the mic. So I went ahead and created a couple of episodes and put them up on uh, Stitcher and iTunes. And I'll be danged. People actually downloaded them. In fact, a surprising number of people downloaded them. I'm not talking about thousands, but certainly more than I expected. And it was actually a little freaky to see that people were downloading it and listening to it. And I use a hosting service to, to post these. And it uses or it provides all of the statistics about the number of people that are downloading it, even shows you which of them is unique or is it people coming back and downloading subsequent episodes. And it also shows you how long they listen to a particular episode. And so I, I was looking through those, through those statistics. I was just kind of curious. And I noticed that a few times people would only listen for 30 seconds. And I was kind of hurt by that. I was like, okay, I didn't really think anybody would listen, but since you did download it and since you did listen, you know, you decided within 30 seconds that it wasn't worth listening to. And then I realized what was going on. Uh, I mean, I couldn't take it too personally because that wouldn't wouldn't even get them past the intro. Uh, but then I realized after I post these things, I listen to them for a few seconds just to make sure the, um, the feed is working. So those 30 second listens were me. Well, you live and learn. See you next time.